You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Where the hell have you been? Enjoying death. 007 reporting for duty. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. And I've got to tell you, have we got a show in store for you? Ruby is, I, I swear, she is serving up the good stuff, as Norm can attest to. Uh, Norm, I see a bottle of uh, McCallan 18 back there. I feel like, uh, is James Bond hanging out with you? Because that seems to be a favorite of his. Not the brand recognition for McCallan in the movie that we're about to talk about is... Nobody brands it better. No, that's so true. I, I mean, it, it's so funny because I one of my first scotches <laughs> ever, and we're in the 602 Club, so we'll talk a little scotch real yes, quick. Yes, we are. Uh, was McAllen 12, and Bond is drinking McAllen 12 when he is away yes. um, uh, on the beach there in that little hut bar thing, and... Um, I love seeing that. The scotch just keeps getting more expensive, though, because by the time he gets to M's house, it's 18. Mm-hmm. And then by the time he's with Silva, it's 50-year-old scotch from McAllen that's as old as Bond. So not a bad haul for that guy. By the way, just a, a fun fact before we get into it, that particularly aged McAllen, what fell off of... Uh, it, I don't want to give too much away, but what fell off of Severine's head, her beautiful head of hair, was at least, at market value, $60,000. Oh, That's my. an expensive shot of whiskey right there. Oh. That's uh, why when Bond said, he goes, it was a waste of good scotch. Yeah. yeah. Not only was he being blunt, but he was also being factual. Yeah, that's, so. that's like what Bond's salary is for the entire year, you know, like... <laughs> That's, oh gosh. Anyway, well, as you can tell, uh, welcome to the 602 Club. We are going to be talking some Skyfall tonight as we make our way to Spectre, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, Before we jump in the show, just want to remind everybody that 602 Club is proudly part of the Trek FM network. You can find us on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're also a feature provider there on iTunes, which we are so proud to be bringing you every single part of Star Trek, even celebrating the brand new news that we're going to be getting a new series. So I hope that you guys have listened to the Ready Room and Hyper Channel as we've talked all about that. And of course, with the Ready Room with the doctor of Star Trek, Larry Nemechek. So be sure to check those out. You can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you would like to contact us about anything, I would love your thoughts on what you're thinking about the Craig films. Go to Trek.FM slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that'll come to me. And of course, leave us a voicemail. Man, you know, we've never had a voicemail here on the 602 Club, and I'd love to hear from you. Go to the show page, any sidebar on any show page. Or you can go to speedpipe.com slash trekfm. Well, guys, I think it's it's just time to dive into Skyfall. And this film, 
obviously came out the 50th anniversary of Bond. So huge celebration there. And John, one of the things that we did when we talked about Quantum is we really picked up on this idea that these films are about Bond. More than anything else, for the first time ever, these films are about the character of James Bond. And so Skyfall really continues that. For all the problems that that you may have with Quantum, it does a good job of continuing the personal story. And this one really continues Bond. So I wanted to start there for you guys about how this story specifically continues to evolve Bond from the brute that we meet in the beginning in Casino to what we get to by the end of this film. And yeah, let's start there. What do you, I, what do you guys think? What about you, John? So yeah, I saw an article not too long ago that was bashing um, among many kind of overused tropes. They were bashing um, origin stories for movies. And, and I get it. You know, it's like every Superman movie, we have to tell the Superman origin for some reason, even though everybody knows it, right? And Batman always references, even if they don't outright tell it, they reference that origin story. And then you look at Star Trek 09 and The Man from Uncle, which you know, arguably Star Trek and Man from Uncle never had an origin story, so we'll we'll fit one in. And this article kept going on to say, like, this is just bad, it's lazy writing, you know. And, and I thought, you know, there are places where it's good and justified and really helps the character. And what we have with the trilogy so far, with Casino Royale, Quantum, and Skyfall, is the Bond origin story. And it's not just going back and retelling who Bond was in all those movies that we saw before. It's really establishing who Bond is now and why that character is relevant and why he is the way he is. I mean, it's a really critical thing to go back and justify the things that maybe didn't quite sit right or maybe had gotten a little old and stale. Um, I think, Matthew, you and I had talked about uh, before, and and perhaps with you, Norman, I I can't remember which episode we hit this in, but I kind of tried to make the case to say that when you say James Bond, you're not talking about a series of books, or you're not just talking about a series of movies. You're talking about books and movies and parody movies, you know, Austin Powers and the Matt Helm movies and Flint and all of those. Those are just as much part of James Bond, in quotes, when you say James Bond as anything else. And that thing that is James Bond, in quotes, has gotten so big and has meant so much to so many different people, you kind of had to take a step back and you kind of had to to pull everything out from underneath that character and slowly bit by bit brick by brick rebuild that character into something that a modern audience could really get behind so what we have here is an origin trilogy and i think that's what's so brilliant about skyfall is that by the time you get to the end of skyfall tremendous payoff for everything that we've seen in casino royale and quantum of solace by the time you get to the end of skyfall you have put Bond back exactly where he belongs, 
but you've also made him new and modern. And it's an incredible trick to pull off. I'm just, I, I, I'm kind of shocked and amazed that they were able to do that, that successfully with these three movies, because there was every opportunity to screw it up. <laughs> you know? Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, and, and Norm, we've talked mm-hmm. about this quite a bit on the Babel conference and just together uh, about these ideas, because there are so many places in pop culture these days where things are being reintroduced to the next generation mm-hmm. and people are decrying oh telling these origin stories like you were talking about john mm-hmm. and yet how many people coming into bond starting with casino and you know here with skyfall this is maybe their first introduction to the character and so telling us these things is not such a bad thing right yeah, you know, we had that conversation about the built-in audience that comes into a franchise that's as as long-lived as Bond or Doctor Who. Doctor Who, 50 years. James Bond, 50 years. Some of the superheroes that we love reading about. Batman, 75 years. Green Lantern, 75 years. Star Trek is coming up on its 50th birthday. It is really difficult sometimes, I think, for the storytellers out there to make the decision to start telling stories for an, a completely new generation of fans, the fans that were that are going to get another 50 years out of these titles, out of these heroes, and out of these characters. Because sometimes when I sit down and I watch a movie, more and more now as I get older, I come to the realization that they're not really speaking directly to me anymore. Part of me is a little dismayed by that. Part of me understands that and how it relates to Bond. Bond is 50 years old. There is a great, there's a great book out there that I read. It's called Love Marks. And one of the examples of a love mark is something that has become so ubiquitous as a product that the top brand of that product becomes the overall product line. For example, if you ask somebody to, to copy something for you, you ask for a Xerox. If you ask somebody to get you some kind of a soda, you ask for a Coke or a Pepsi doesn't matter what it is, but that's what it becomes. Bond itself, before the Daniel Craig movies, was a love mark. Because when you start thinking about, I'm going to go see a James Bond movie, if somebody doesn't really understand the nomenclature, the vocabulary, and the detail, and the architecture of what James Bond is, they'll understand that just because he's a love mark, they'll say, oh, it's the, you know, the really handsome spy who has this great selection of wines. He knows exactly what he's eating by just smelling it. He can tell you exactly where the spices came from. He goes home with the girl. He thwarts the villain in a volcano, and then you get your next movie two years later. That has That is what Bond eventually became, and I think the best example of that was Die Another Day. When the fans cried foul about that movie and what Bond became, I think that was really smart for the creators to go back and say, you know what? These fans have seen it all. There are no new stories to tell these fans. We need to recreate Bond for a fresh group of eyes. And for the fresh group of eyes, I think they're really enjoying it. I think they really enjoy seeing the Craig films for what the Craig films represent to this modern audience. However, there are still legions of fans that still support the brand and still have to come to grips with that this Bond is no longer Connery 
Moore, Lazenby, and Dalton, and Pierce. This is a completely new, reformulated, recalibrated, and just re-strategized Bond for a completely new franchise. We don't want just three or four films out of this new franchise. We want a whole new series of films. And I think that's really important for people to understand moving into, into Spectre that's coming up. But more importantly, how to just digest all of this different minutia that's, you know, and all this different lore that's in these Daniel Craig films. What I really was surprised about in this film and the idea of continuing Bond is that this Bond, it's a, it's a broken Bond. They, they, you know, they kill our Bond for all intents and purposes and bring him back to life. You know, that he must exercise the demons literally and figuratively from him to rise out of the ashes like the phoenix to be the bond that we more recognize in in terms of say a connery or a more lazenby anybody else um and and that's what was so interesting for me is that this this movie they put to death the old bond and bring back the new bond and from the moment that he arrives in m's house and says 007 reporting for duty, that bond begins to slowly grow into, by the end of the film, the bond we're more familiar with. And I think that's so really... I was just... I was so struck by that. The idea that, you know, he's... um, he does surgery on himself to pull out the shards. You know, uh, he he's exercising the demons very literally there from his life uh, and, and who he used to be almost to more of who he'll become. And it was a great and interesting theme. And I think it I just personally for me, as a huge Bond fan, I think it worked very well, especially... That for the most part, when he comes back, he's more quippy. He's a little bit colder in the sense that things aren't bothering him as much as they have in the past. And he's just all business. Even when he's getting shot at you know, by a helicopter with a fifty caliber you know, round gun. It's, it's I don't know. I, I just, I really appreciate how far this film is willing to dive into the character and who he is and where he kind of learns how to cope. Well, you know, we kind of talked about that at one point where we said, all right, you start out with Bond and he's he's good looking and he's strong and he's sort of good at everything and he knows about everything. So he's a superhero who can do anything. Okay, that's interesting for a while, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, um, and and that that template sort of served Bond well for a while, but then at a certain point, I think um, you know you can credit this to whomever uh, uh, producers, writers, directors, actors, certainly. Um, 
kind of had to take that step back and say, all right, well, how does a guy actually get there to become this thing that is that that has this personality, that has this job, that can do these things that he can do? And in Skyfall, like I said, we complete that process where, um, as you just said, Matthew, he's broken. He can't do the things that Bond can do. Um, he, he's physically hurt. I mean, one of the, the most interesting reveals in the movie is that he failed to pass those tests that would put him back on active duty. So he himself has to pull it together to complete the mission to become that person who can do it. That's a fascinating thing to put that character through. Whether he actually knows that in the back of his head or not is sort of an interesting question. And that also is maybe part of the reveal about his relationship with M, that it that it's M who believes that he can do that by actually doing the job, that a test won't actually reveal anything uh, uh, useful um, to say that realistically whether or not Bond can become this person who is the best agent that they've got. Um, so, yeah, I... I I don't. I think that's why this movie is so important, or again, this trilogy is so important to Bond, um, because the more we go back and we say, okay, Connery was the the sort of more cold blooded, uh, ruthless Bond, and then Roger Moore was the guy sort of having fun with it and making the odd quip here and there. Well, if we were to take the best of all of these and bring them together and say that these are all traits of James Bond. How can we actually realistically say, here's a guy who exists, who is all of that? It's Again, I'm just sort of blown away that that is something that could get accomplished as as deftly and as, as smartly as they did it. Because I, I don't think that um, I don't think that a writer of a lesser caliber could have pulled that off. As you're talking through that, there's this wonderful thing that they do throughout the beginning of the movie and kind of in the middle. There's this kind of Star Trek two, Star Trek six theme. Are we too old for this bleep? Yep. You know, like an M and Bond are both going through that same thing. Are we just, you know, as Spock said, are 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 we are we too? You and I grown so old that we are no longer capable of being useful. Mm-hmm. And would that consider a joke? They threw that a- <laughs> well, they threw that away in a line in uh Goldeneye when M calls Bond a misogynistic dinosaur and a dinosaur. relic of the cold yeah. uh, the the Cold War. And, and right. it's sort of there for the audience to chuckle at and go, oh, yeah, okay, I guess James Bond was this character in the 60s. Now it's the 90s. So, yeah, okay, at least we acknowledge that he doesn't quite fit. This movie took that in a whole different direction where, like you said, we actually got to the heart of it and we actually got to an analysis of Bond and Q trying to figure out why are they there? And what is this relationship that they have to each other, to the job, to the the people that they encounter around them? They really got to sit down and analyze that instead of just sort of toss it out to the audience and, and let us make of it whatever we would. I mean, when you really look at the structure of the film and the, and the story that they're trying to tell, I mean, it's really no different than, than like the Greek hero's journey mm-hmm. from when they started 
and the the evolutionary process of how they became the hero at the end. And because James Bond always traditionally represented an almost infallible force of nature, I think one of the things that the audience, at least audiences of the past that understood the James Bond of the past, had a hard time reconciling with that this James Bond is actually vulnerable, is actually a human being that has to be able to adapt to the situation at hand. Because taking a look at this film, he really does go through this labyrinthian journey into the darkness of himself and literally and figuratively into the darkness of train tracks and tunnels and chasing after basically an evil that not only is personified by the villain, but something that he can't quite reach, at least at the beginning of the movie, and that is coming to grips with his own mortality. Because at the very beginning of the movie, he really does literally hit rock bottom. He wasn't fast enough. He wasn't strong enough. He wasn't invulnerable enough. And his partner, the person that he could have trust, had had to trust in the most, failed him. Everything failed in the beginning of the movie. Everything. And his ability to stop the threat against MI6 also failed. Because he wasn't there. So he literally had to pick himself up from his own bootstraps and figure out that I have to become what my country and M and this organization needs the most. They need me to become the hero. But how do I get there? What have I learned? What pain and what experience and the suffering has forged the steel of this new person? And how do we see that get tempered and how does that evolve through the course of the movie? And just seeing the reveals in this movie really speak volumes of how well-crafted the lessons he's learned from Casino Royale to Quantum of Solace to the very beginning into the middle of the movie pay off. Because towards the end, he is really putting everything that he's learned in motion. Nothing like having to pull yourself out of the bottom of a Macallan bottle. So, you know, <laughs> there could be worse things. Uh, yeah, it could be worse. I mean, look, this is still James Bond here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. he's I mean, still got taste. Yeah, rock uh, bottom to him is I mean, the bottom I, of a McKellen 18. I know, don't know so. about, you know, drinking Heineken, but, uh, you know, that least. really was rock bottom for him. Yeah, that way. was rock bottom <laughs> for us all. Yeah. <laughs> What's. What's really interesting here is obviously Bond's connection with M and the way that they orbit each other in these films. And what I thought was so interesting is that Bond's lesson about how to deal and how to live with himself and with everything else is to become M. I mean, Mm. when you look at the way that Judi Dench plays M, everything is a quip, everything is a joke, everything is, um, she plays everything off, especially, look at that scene where she's talking to Mallory, Uh, that defiance that she has and the way she addresses him, the, the, the disregard for anybody in power above her. Uh, the um, flippancy that she has, and yet the very deadly serious nature which she takes her job, 
all of those things are what bond is and what bond becomes, you know. Um, and what I thought was so interesting is that M in this movie, I think, stands for mother. And for for M, she has obviously two children in this film. She has Bond and she has Silva. And one is her prize and the other one is the fallen black sheep. And the way that Bond exonerates himself, the way that Bond makes it in this film is that I think he's most like his mother figure who has taught him everything he knows. And it's a very, again, the psychology of it and, and just how far we're digging into the characters I think is so very interesting because even though Mallory is a different, it will and will be a different M, the amount of trust that he's cultivated with the department uh, and the way that, you know, Judy Dench's, Dame Judy Dench's um, M treated him transfers over, I think. And uh, again, I just, I think that's one of the most interesting things watching this film for me. And I was really struck by it kind of for the first time rewatching it this last week is that Bond learns to deal because he learns to deal with things like M does. Um, and that everybody's expendable, even myself, and I will do whatever it takes to get the job done, and I'm going to do it with style, and with quips, and with good brandy, or scotch. You know, the cool thing about watching their relationship, and I, and I agree, Matthew, I think that there is very much maternal strength um, in, in the relationship between with Bond and M. But I think it goes a little bit further than that. I think that there's a trust there that he knows that is just absolutely sustainable and solid because he knows who she is and how she's going to treat not just him but the situation. She's taught him the art of deflection. And as the minister of or the secretary or the one in charge of the MI6 program, she needs to be that. Every deflection is an advantage. She knows the game. She also knows that Mallory knows the game because of his record. And, and I have to say this just to get this out because I've always wanted to say this. Ever since I saw Ralph Fiennes play Mallory, I'm like, A, awesome because he was always considered as a Bond candidate when he was younger after Schindler's List and Strange Days. I mean, he was his, his star was on the rise. But... There is such a spiritual succession to Bernard Lee in in Ralph Fiennes that it's just his portrayal of M is is or Mallory before M was just amazing. But going back to the relationship, without M, without Dame Judi Dench's M, she is literally what tempers Bond. She makes sure that he's choosing the right course of action subtly with her influence and pointing her weapon in the right direction at the right time and knowing that he will always be able to do the job because of how she's influenced him over the course of his career from Casino Royale to, to Skyfall. And the two together, the chemistry that they have, you can't really, you can't buy that. You have to have it. And those two had it together. And that's what really makes their relationship for me work out really well. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think Matthew hit it on the head by describing their relationship the way that you did. And this, again, it still informs what we're doing to Bond here. Um, this Bond who exists under that version of M, under the Judy Dench M, is a Bond who has to be looked after. <laughs> you know? he He's a Bond who either has gotten sloppy on the job or maybe whose who's heart we can trust, uh, but maybe his head not always. So that M is there to act like that mothering figure. By the time we get to the end of the movie and we have a new M, their relationship is very different. Their relationship is more one of peers, and you get the idea that this bond has grown and changed, and he doesn't need to be looked after the way that he did before. And again, I think it goes back to saying, okay, all those times that Connery walked into an office, and it was the Bernard Lee M, and they had their relationship, now we get to justify why that relationship was the way it was. Um, same thing with Money Penny, actually. I know we'll talk about Money Penny a bit later, but um, yeah, I, this is this is the point where sort of the child stops being the child and becomes the adult. I know that James Bond has always been an adult, but we got to sort of slough off the last vestiges of maybe what was um, what was torturing Bond throughout these last few movies. And of course, culminating in that whole scene at Skyfall, we just kind of got to purge Bond of all of this baggage dealing with the childhood home. And um, I, I love that M asks him, how old were you when you were, uh, when your parents died? He just said, you know the answer to that. <laughs> you know, they, they know I'm each sorry. other all too well. And, and um, uh, she's just sort of, I don't know, she, she's digging in deeper to that personal relationship that they have. But then when that's gone by the end of this movie, we know it's a whole new thing that we'll get with Bond and new M. I have to ask both of you a question because when I was watching it and that line came up about, you know, he was an orphan from this grand manner and he had obviously these parents that were well to do and then he had um someone to look after him both in Kincaid and in M do any of you feel a Batman vibe going on here <laughs> so he should have answered like you know the answer to that <laughs> you know the whole story I mean it's it's kind of like Bruce Wayne coming back to stately Wayne Manor mm-hmm. in in tatters because he has gone out to live his life. And the only way that he can truly become Batman is to shed himself of, of this, this, uh, the wealthy heirs that trap him and become this, this savior, this, this hero. I don't know. It's, I felt it very... I don't want to get too far into it because we're going to talk about the Skyfall section later, but it just felt very orchestrated in that sense, you have that superhero-esque type of origin now with, you know, being this, this product of all of these great influences because you were taken away from the stability of, of this home life that you had. You know, Superman was rocketed, you know, to Earth because his home was doomed. You know, and, and I don't know if this is the same thing for Bond. I don't, you know, we don't know that past, but he was literally sped away from the origins of his life that should have been his life into something else. I mean, that's, that's very tropish of, 
of what a superhero usually goes through. I, I think the real question here is, um, did we feel in Batman that they were aping James Bond? And I only say that <laughs> because we, we do know, I mean, of course, the, the Batman origin story had been laid down on the comics, um, I believe, before the, the James Bond origin story. But that story about Andrew Bond um, having died in a skiing accident, well, that was all from the books. So it was another nice kind mm-hmm. of literary tie-in uh, for that movie to have. Um, so, yeah, they they do share some DNA. <laughs> I don't know if Ian Fleming was reading the Bob Kane comics, but uh, <laughs> would, would you say that they bat dance around it? Oh yes. I would most definitely <laughs> say they bat dance okay. around, around the bat pole. <laughs> That's right. uh, yeah. So, but I think you make a great point there because, and, and this is one of those things is that this bond hasn't been the superhero yet. You know, um, those old bonds, I mean, God, you think about some of the things that Roger Moore was involved in as Bond. It is superhero area we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, When you think of Die Another Day, it's the same kind of area where you got to. And, But yeah, a lot of those storylines, you know, they they tend to kind of come from the same place of tragedy. And, And one of the things that I liked about this was Bond has this tragic history but I, I think it really helps us understand why he is the way he is. And each and every little piece here helps explain, as we said in our very first podcast, and, and, and John, you rightly put it, um, making him necessary and in, in showing what made those things about him necessary, how he treats women, why he doesn't fall in love, uh, you know, the ways that he... Um, has such a cold heart towards you know killing and all these other things they they slowly and surely have built the bricks you know and created the home that will be known as bond mm-hmm. and it it's a really it's to me it's just a really well done very methodical way of crafting the character so that he becomes more and more in line with what we know and we're getting to see as we talked about Norm way back when on the 602 Club when we talked about Man of Steel, which is the road to becoming the icon. Mm-hmm. Man of Steel, Clark is not Superman in that film. Right. He isn't the icon yet. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he puts on the suit, but that still doesn't make him Superman. Uh, and so this whole series has been about the road to becoming the icon that we know of James Bond with all that baggage. And I love, I love, I love any of these storylines for any of these franchises where we get to see how and why the character becomes who they are. So whether it's on TV, watching the arrow turn into, you know, the green arrow or, you know, any of those things that we're seeing, I I think it's, it's fabulous because when a character has existed for so long, and we've never really seen, at least on screen, that that kind of story play out. You know, because Bond just comes on the screen and, and Dr. No, and he is just James Bond. Like, he right. is the fully mm-hmm. fleshed character. Mm-hmm. Now, all the tropes of the films won't be there until, you know, Goldeneye, where the whole formula of what we know of James Bond becomes laid out. But... The character himself, he's fully formed. So I, and to me, it, it's it's so exciting to watch characters 
really go. And as we talked about, this was the 50th anniversary for Bond, so Skyfall was a huge deal. And I wanted to be able to spend some time with you guys just kind of Bond geeking out. Bonding? <laughs> as, uh, bonding, yes. A little bit of bonding. Somebody had to say it. As, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> About some of your favorite moments of things that they just threw in there that were just for the fans who've been there. You know, obviously, I haven't been there for 50 years, but I have seen all of the Bonds. I've seen them multiple times, so I'm versed in the universe. And so there's little things that you just, you know, as you watch every time, you're like, oh, 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 I love that. Oh, he must be joking. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. There you go. That was mine. Yep. Go. We can. Nice. I think we're going to have to go like almost tit for tat with this because I could I could go and and I don't want to steal everyone's ideas but for me uh one of the very first ones I mean let's go I mean I know it's it's a little shoehorned in in the film and I love it when I see it but you know bond you know uh uncorking the DB5 in there yeah yeah and um seeing <laughs> Just seeing M relentlessly go after Bond, like, what are you doing? Where are you taking me? Why are we doing this? Where are you going? How did and then all of a sudden he pops the top off of the gear level of the gear shifter and you see the red dot. And I I just love you're right, Matthew. It's like this is just M in style. It's like, go ahead, eject me. I could care less. But for the Bond fans out there, for the fifty year old fans that have been watching this basically since the car was introduced in Goldeneye, or, sorry, Goldfinger, you know what that means. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is see that gear shifter and see him pop the lever and see the button and you know what it means and you're waiting for it. You don't get it, but that's okay. It's cool. It's there. So somebody go next because I just want to keep going with it. <laughs> no, I, I think that's such a good one. I mean, the the car, you know, Bond won the car in Casino Royale. So yeah. we so we, we established that Bond gets the car, right? But I love the idea now that in that time, Q Branch has fixed up his car. I've had a few optional extras <laughs> installed. And I love that M would know what that is. You, you know? like to call that the Q package, the Q grade? Right. The Q upgrade? Right, right. <laughs> um, so again, you know, we we justify that Bond has that car, that it's not just what was hot and new in 1964. It's what a guy with a sense of style and a sense of humor has in well when this movie came out 2012 but 2015 for us um that just uh, it was played perfectly now mm-hmm. i i cringed when it got shot up and that's still oh, a very that, hard scene for me to watch oh, you know? it breaks your heart it does it does but you know what do we do in the next movie we don't know inspector does he have that car fixed or you know does he say yeah i'm going to trade this in for the new model. Well, we but know what's coming. I found that very symbolic because that literally was that icon mm-hmm. of that car literally was one of the last vestiges of the classic bond that needed to be burned away in that crucible. I mean, literally yeah. it was a crucible. Yeah. Skyfall was this yeah. giant ball of flame that burned away everything that was of the old. Right. Including the car. So we have the car. I mean, of course, um, getting the Walther PPK well, yeah, you know that again. It's important we justify that Bond got and the radio. That well, and that's, that's it. The radio. Not only does he get a radio, a simple piece of technology, but it looks like the one from Goldfinger. They call it a Homa. 
Yeah. <laughs> what did you expect? A exploding pen? It's I love that. Perfect, perfect. I love that. Um, the music cues. Now, in every Bond movie, we get the Bond theme, but the music cues in this brilliantly use the, the Adele Skyfall song. And, of course, we use the James Bond theme, but there are little hints where you go, oh, they were listening to Goldfinger when they wrote that. <laughs> you know, or or insert Bond movie here. So it, it's the perfect blend of new soundtrack that fits what we've created for this movie, but also references without beating you over the head that there is a history here. Um, and of course, you know, a, a, a line like you must be joke. I, I think that was just great that they had that in there. <laughs> it was a lot but of fun. I do think that Naomi Harris was, was it Naomi Harris? Yes, Naomi Harris mm. was wearing a classic money penny dress mm. Mm. with the, the with blue the, uh, one the, at blue the end. ruffle. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that yeah. was one of Lois Maxwell's styled dresses. Mm. Mm. And then, of course, you have all the the, the 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 standard accoutrement of M's office. You had the coat rack. I was waiting for him to throw a hat on there, but <laughs> we might get that later. And then at the very end, literally the the closing of M's, you know, security door with the padded detail, the leather padded detail on the door. I mean, that is about as throwback to right to Dr. No as you could possibly get. And, and see, and that's what's so brilliant about that. Because again, I mean, this whole show is having the same thing of of getting rid of the old to bring in the new to justify the old. Like that—that mm-hmm. that is the the brilliance of the story arc, and that just to see that, to see that office, to see that hat rack, and to see that door, and to see this new M who doesn't look like Bernard Lee, but in your head you're going, of course we're back home. Now, now that thing that seemed like okay, yeah, in 1962 they thought they were being awfully clever by having this office hidden behind a padded door, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> that just felt old by the time that you got to 1978 and 1984 and beyond. But now we got to say, but of course, of course they're there now because what was happening at MI6 in this huge ziggurat ugly building <laughs> i know that's the actual mi6 building yeah. but but we blow that up at the beginning of the movie and say all right all bets are off nothing is safe so mm-hmm. by the time you get to the end of it it's comfortable because it's old but it totally makes sense it totally right. makes sense in your head and you go yeah of course i mean i i said to you guys before when you get to the end of skyfall if he had walked into that office and M said, here's your next assignment, and it's Dr. No, I would have said, yeah, that absolutely it is. <laughs> that makes sense, you know, because we started right back over. I would have cried if Daniel Craig looked at the folder, looked at the crowd, or like, kind of like winked at the audience and goes, <laughs> so how do I get to Crab Key? Yeah, yeah. I would have, and then it stops. Oh, my God. Right. I would have just melted in my chair yeah i i kind of expected them to you know walk into that office there and bond to just go money penny we're home (laughs) (laughs) so uh it it my i i think my favorite nod to bond is so small it's the classic bonds and it's when he's 
crawled over the crane uh, to to get into the torn off Ugh. part of the train, and he fixes his cuff. Yes, on he does. Both sides. Classic Bond, you know, uh, where he will fix his tie, you know, after it gets ruffled. Uh, it, it's just. Mm-hmm. Which there was a great article in, uh, I think it was GQ when the movie came out, and they said, guys, if you're trying to have the Bond suit, don't even try because they have made suits for different action poses for Craig so that every time he's doing something, the cuff is always at the right length. That's not going to happen with a real suit, guys. So it's not real. It's just movie magic. Um, So that scene I loved. And then, I, you know, like at the very end of the film where he walks into the chapel and she's like, what took you so long? And he says... Uh, I fell into some deep water. Mm-hmm. That's classic quippy bonds where it's just he is passing off what I almost died as eh, just another day at the office, kind of like a right. slow Tuesday. Right. Uh, right. You know, so I the and what's so great is that the movie is just rife with those. And it's not in your face. It's just there. And if you know Bond, you're going to see it and you're going to enjoy it as a fan in this 50th anniversary film. And if you're not, you're going to want to go back and watch Bond so you can get all of them (laughs) because this movie is so damn good that it makes you want to go back and and watch the rest of the Bonds. I'm sorry when you get to the Roger Moore films. There's nothing I can do for you. Um, They're good breadcrumbs. They really are. Yeah. 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 and And that's a great way to put it. And I love that, Norm. The 50th anniversary film just put all those little breadcrumbs, just like you. So, But they, they, they did it in a way with subtlety and intelligence that hasn't always been the hallmark of Bond films. <laughs> Let's face it. you know. Um, and I don't know if it's – well, it's certainly not New Regimes because it's still Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli um, – mm-hmm. But maybe it's understanding a new sensibility about their audience. You know, one of the sort of cardinal rules of a creative endeavor, particularly performing arts, is to play to the top of your audience's intelligence. Don't dumb something down because you assume that the audience won't get it, you know. Um, But, you know, you just mentioned Roger Moore. When you have a, a pigeon doing a double take... It's telegraphing to the audience. Okay, I knew someone was going to bring that. Right, up. you know, oh. <laughs> and I, I and believe, you know, I still have love for Roger Moore movies, but but there are scenes like that just absolutely make me cringe um, mm. because it's telegraphing to the audience, saying, "See that thing that just happened? That was the funny thing." Right. You know, yeah, that's any time the you know Sergeant Peppers is on right. Yes, screen. Yeah. yeah, right. So yeah. right, J W Pepper. Yeah. Uh, um, but an audience doesn't need that because the movie itself, the the character himself, they're all carrying that. So humor, when it's done right in a movie like that, has got to be humor that comes from character, not from jokes. Mm-hmm. We talked about this and we talked about The Man from Uncle. When that was most successful with humor, it was doing it because you got the characters and you said, yep, that's how that character would behave. And it's funny because he's, you know, taking it out of his partner at this point, you know, mm-hmm. but it's believable. <laughs> it's believable. And, and that's what they accomplished throughout Skyfall. 
Well, this movie is is really interesting because, like Quantum of Solace, what we which we talked about, John, there were some very um, timely issues, some things where they were they were really trying to be uh, modern and how they were approaching with the villains and what they were trying to say about things with the environmental terrorism that we were talking about, which was very interesting, and I, I think. Uh, a great way to go uh, in that uh, you know obviously for all the the issues they had w- mainly writing so that go listen to that show John and I talked all <laughs> about quantum but this film talks all about the shadows and you know M is even basically on trial for what's happened with this intelligence um, being lost and the you know, the entire list of every single NATO agent in the world has been lost. And, you know, much like politicians who enjoy grandstanding for things that they probably really don't even understand, uh, M is put on trial. It's, it's very public. And I thought it was so interesting just the way that this movie speaks so intelligently about the need for and the importance of human intelligence to be had. And I was just, you know, you, I would say you don't expect that necessarily from Hollywood, um, but this film I think is, you could really point to it, especially with the defense that M gives of why this is important. Um, which obviously Mallory then begins to buy into, which is important to where his character will go. But I wanted to ask you guys about that because, you know, Bond movies aren't known for being something that can actually teach you or or, or make you think about a very important lesson. But this one, I think, uh, was one of those films where you you do come away and you're, you're thinking about a very timely and a very important issue about the way we deal with how we gather intelligence and why we do it. I think um, this is something that I went back and forth with in my head while watching this movie again. And I don't know if, I don't know if I've even really settled on a conclusion because I, I think there are a couple of messages in there. What you're proposing here, uh, Matthew is asking is a James Bond movie making a political statement about this kind of espionage. And of course, they're dealing with a fantastical version of this, but just the idea at all that countries spy on each other and gather intelligence and do this stuff that maybe can't or should not be totally open to the public. You know, we we in the United States, we put people in positions of power. We we elect congressmen and presidents and all and, and say, OK, look, we get it when we give you our tax dollars. Here are all the things that you're doing with it. But we also understand that those tax dollars go to things that you can't reveal to us because it's in the interest of safety and and uh government intelligence so so we get that and that's sort of the contract that we have with our elected officials there's another thing going on in this movie and i thought that q really summed it up when he said look and i'm paraphrasing here but he said to bond you know i could do more damage before i've had my first cup of earl gray on a computer 
than you could in however many days or weeks, he says, in the field with a gun. Mm-hmm. The world has changed, and the world that they operate in has changed. I asked myself, had Q been better at recognizing what was going on, or if MI6 had a dozen Qs doing that job, would this whole thing have been over before it began? Because that battle is fought on computers. And if they had been had a different tactic, a different approach, would all of that have been done and silver would have been identified and that all, all these little traps that he had laid would have been wiped out before they even had a chance to go off? Well, you can't do that story in this movie because in this story, James Bond has got to go find Silva and Silva has got to escape from jail in something very dramatic and Silva has got to blow up a train station and and do all of these things. That's the action of the movie. So I was sort of wrestling with the idea of justifying this as a political statement. Sure, I think that's fair. But also sort of to the audience, again, justifying why this James Bond character exists. So watch us. We're going to take apart this character and put him back together and not only do we justify the trappings, we just justify the car and the gun and all these other things that he does and the drinks that he drinks. But we're now also going to justify why he exists at all and why this guy has a job at all. So I think we can look at it in all of those possible ways. I think it's intriguing that they would make a, that they would make a statement like that. And maybe part of it is a political statement, but maybe part of it is simply just to say, look, you've had this character, you've owned this character for 50 years, and maybe through your nostalgic eyes, you can look at what Bond was doing in the 60s at the height of the Cold War and sort of go, oh, well, we don't live in that world anymore, but wasn't that quaint, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But now we're going to give you a reason to want Bond today to want Bond in the 21st century. So I, I think it works on every single one of those levels. And I, I don't know that any one particularly outweighs another. Um, but I think it was, all of that was very well handled by the movie. How about you, Norman? You know, I think that the allegory between technology versus intuition is really heavily at play here because what we're dealing with is James Bond a spy that is ruled by instinct and not governed by technology. The technology is there to serve him, but he doesn't rely on it the way that he used to rely on it, like in the older movies. Q Branch pretty much outlaid him with everything. They made a very specific point when the new Q, the this new kind of whippersnapper, <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, what's the word, hipster kind of Q, You've right? still got spots. Yeah, he's, got spots. He's, he's so young. And yeah. you saw in that line of dialogue at the museum where he gives him the Walther, albeit a little bit new teched up because it has that, you know, the palm recognition software and the radio. He's like, that's all I get. <laughs> but that's all Bond really needs because yeah. Bond is about instinct. It's about trusting the intelligence that he himself procures by his senses, by doing the old school way of doing things, by by training your assets, by collaborating with all these different elements outside in the field. That's, that's the way that he used to do it. I mean, it's kind of like, 
it, it's hard to try and assemble my thoughts about all this because there are so many different dynamics in play trying to serve the story. They're trying to, one, show you that the Bond from the 60s is still relevant, that that's Sean Connery Bond, the kind where I know that you broke into my closet because I plucked out a piece of my hair <laughs> Draped it across the seam of the of the uh, of the two doors, and if it dropped, that means you were in there. Or I talcum powdered the locks of my briefcase, and I now have your fingerprints. Mm-hmm. That's intuition. That's anticipating my opponent. At the same time, we are dealing with the modern era. We are dealing with the internet and the ability to attack on that level. That is what Silva is counting on. Silva is counting on the fact that MI6 is, for all intents and purposes lazy about their own security and that is kind of like very much the message of die hard 4 or die hard 4.0 that no matter how big your infrastructure is and the security that's involved silva was on the inside to begin with he knows how to breach your defenses and he knows how to exactly play you at every step of the way because you mi6 have bought into this fact that your technology is going to save you but the one thing he didn't count on was that Bond is not a slave to that part of the process. And you really see that truly at play at the very end of the movie where Bond does the one thing that Kincaid made a point of saying. And he puts the knife down on the table, the very same knife he uses to kill Silva. And he said, the old ways are always the best Mm -hmm. because you can still trust them because they still follow your base instinct and they can't be corrupted or... In terms of technology, they can't be infected or turned off or dis, you know, unplugged or disconnected. Yeah. And that's the one thing that Bond is no longer. He's no longer a pawn to all of that. He is following the one thing that M has taught him to do. He's following his training. It reminded me specifically, and, and not to choose a side on all of this, but just the fact that take the Iraq war and what we knew intelligence wise was something and it said all these things and the world kind of had a consensus on what that was about Iraq and then of course we got there and found out that we were wrong and and the and so that you can gather intelligence by all these technologies and all of that but what I thought was really interesting, and I felt like this film was saying, is nothing beats human intelligence of finding out specifically for yourself for going and finding out. Um, and, and that was a that was an interesting thing. Like you were talking about Norm, it, it's it's kind of anti technology, you know, because technology is so easily fooled these days because everybody's kind of on the same playing field. When it comes to cyber terrorism and stuff, I mean, we may be ahead of the game of, say, everybody in that point, but still, it's never going to be secure. So nothing will be secure is what Bond does when, you know, uh, Q says, sometimes a trigger has to be pulled, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's pretty final. So it it was just, uh, I think you're so right both of you though that the movie is saying a lot of things it's laying out a lot of things and it's asking i think for the first time maybe really the bond audience to think about something that's very relevant to today that's very relevant to today but without 
laying the answer out. You know, they, they just kind of give you the questions and you can take that home with you. That's for free, uh, along with your price of admission. So, uh, <laughs> and I think that's a really, that's a kind of a neat thing to see that something as artificial as a Bond film actually had something to say that would make us think about something more important than who did Bond sleep with, what did he drink, and what was his car? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a nice progression for a character where that's really what we talked about and what you would talk about that in the theme song, you know. Uh, so that's that's good growth as a as a franchise, <laughs> I think. Um, and and it again, as we've come down to it's it's made him relevant because he can ask certain questions. And, and that's a nice thing. So. This this movie was fun because it did introduce us to some new characters. Uh, we got Mallory and Moneypenny, Q, Servine as the, the main Bond woman, uh, and Kincaid. Uh, and I wanted to ask you guys, um, let's because uh, I think we'll end up probably talking about uh, Moneypenny quite a bit and, and, and Mallory maybe more than just any of the others but so what did you think about the introduction of Mallory and obviously where he ends up in the film um did it work for you Uh, let me ask you this did it work for you the first time that you saw it was it any kind of surprise that this guy was going to be the new M I I was completely surprised and thrilled I mean, maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. Now, the nice thing is I go back and I rewatch that movie two or three times, and just every single moment, I'm going, that's him, that's him, he's going to be him. <laughs> you know? But when I first saw it, I, just, I wasn't thinking about it. I was paying too much attention to Judy Dench the first time around, and um, really was invested in her story. Um, and, and just felt her loss was tragic. So I, I was surprised and thrilled when we got new M by the end of it. And like I said before, this changes the dynamic between those characters. They are more equals. Um, and there's a kind of, not that Bond didn't respect M's, you know, Judy Dench's M because he did, but it's a different kind of respect with this new M. And I can't wait to see that play out. I thought he did a fantastic job. I mean, I wasn't sure at first. Like, John, you know, we were kind of following the characters that we know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's really it's really just exciting to watch Daniel Craig and Judy Dench together because their chemistry is just so fantastic, as I mentioned before. But seeing Ralph Fiennes in there as Mallory, even though that I wasn't sure if he was going to be M at the end of this movie... I had a feeling that he was going to be M in the future. Like they were setting up that character, that transition, because he just plays that really great bureaucratic stuffed shirt so well. And eventually in the James Bond franchise, that's that's kind of Bond's foil in, you know, in uh in the organization. Whereas, you know, he has a great time flirting and having his interludes with money penny you know it's always m it's like you know and please skip the traditional by play with money penny <laughs> 007 you know i need you in here because we got to do work mm-hmm. and then you know james bond's like duty calls but I, I always thought that it was trending that way and 
I was a little surprised at what happened to M at the end of the movie, um, Judy Dench's M, but it made a lot of sense because with that moment is really kind of like that's where Bond really shed the last of of the safety net of his life, you know, where he could just step forward and become the agent that I think that M really wanted him to be and and, and be that equal um, and walk into that office in MI6 and say, hey, you know what? I'm ready. What's the next case? I like that. The first time I saw the movie, you know, you're kind of thinking, oh, man, is this going to be that guy who's on the inside that's, you know, the jerk that's hindering everything? And that Mallory doesn't turn into that. You know, he 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 really is there to do his job and to it and do it to the best of his ability and to support what's happening and 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 what made that so wonderful is there's that great scene where where Q is standing there with Tanner and he's creating the breadcrumb trail and they have that WTF moment when Mallory walks in and they think they're both totally screwed <laughs> and what does Mallory do he says no you know go for it do it i mean you know if the pm finds out we're all buggered anyway but you know uh, that he's behind his men, yeah, uh, and uh, he's he's there for them to let them do the job which they are so good at doing, and that's the moment when I kind of really fell in love with that character, and knew that you know if he did become M, that's I was going to be a fan of his. So I really like Ray Fiennes. I think he just nails every scene he's in. Uh, when he tells Bond as he walks out of the room to not it up, um, yeah, I'm not gonna say that on the show, but uh, you you know what he said. Um, Blank just, it, a doodle do. Yeah, uh, it's very classic British, you know, dry humor, and he does it so well. So, um, you know, next to Bond, nobody does it better than Mallory or or M. So. Well, they're, they're much closer to equals. And um, what, uh, you know, when we look at the progression of M through the movies, um, and you go back to Bernard Lee and, and all the incarnations that we've seen of M, um, I think what we had before was sort of like, you thought that Bond still knew more than the old guys in the room because the old guys in the room were just sort of like the, 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 stuffy figureheads and yeah they could dole out the mission but we really had to rely on bond to figure it out we already discussed judy dench as a sort of mother figure and, and we cemented that relationship in these movies and then had to had to do away with that relationship in order to push bond a little further um this new m is a little bit of both but neither because we know now going forward that he's not just the stuffed shirt who just sort of doles out information. He's just there for exposition, then he goes away. I agree with you, Matthew. That scene when he walks in on Q and Tanner doing their thing, you're like, no, actually this M, well, now at the end of the movie we realize he's M, he actually might be the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> There's a reason that he's earned the position that he does, and he's taken a bullet. He was a man of action yeah. in the courtroom. Yeah, he's great in that scene. Mm -hmm. Great in that scene. Well, and the way that he dresses down that 
like member of parliament is my guess mm. mm-hmm. and it's like maybe just for the sake of, of variety we could hear from the witness <laughs> and she's like oh yes well, well that was actually that was Voldemort dressing uh, down Mrs. Mallory. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, <laughs> right. in, in the grand scheme of things, he does have rank over her. Yeah. Well, then we get to uh, our, I, you know, just, uh, oh gosh, phenomenal performance, I think, uh, with with Naomi Harris's Money Penny. And obviously throughout the film, we don't know that that's who this is going to be. Yeah, I... New money, Penny. Guys, go. You know what? I'm so glad that you brought this up because when when we first saw this, we were like, okay, female agent, you know, um, possible love interest, very sexy, very capable. Obviously, uh, was a little bit more threatening to Bond. So you know, his relationship with her was a little on a knife's edge. And then the reveal at the end. And this is, remember, the first time that you saw it. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you were doing your John Boyega, what? Yeah, I was like, what? what? No, I mean, what? That, that scene blew me away because that one over any other reveal, because I, I had a feeling that 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 Ralph Fiennes was going to be M, eventually M. Because you, know, you have Mallory, you know, have the transition between M. But when she walked into the room and she's like, yep, I'm this new secretary, I'm like, is it? Is it? Is it? And then she's like, "By the way, we haven't formally introduced ourselves. My name's Bond, James Bond." It's like Eve, Eve Money Penny. I was like, "Oh, I fell in love so hard at the end." I was like, "Wow, that just blew my mind." And I, I really can't say much more than that because the, the, the twist that went on in my brain was so unbelievably twelve-year-oldish. It was amazing. Well, for fifty years. We watched in all those very short pieces of uh, of dialogue between Bond and and uh, Money Penny. We watched those scenes, and, and and they were specifically designed to make you sit there and go, "Wait, did they? Didn't mm-hmm. they? Are they? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what's their background? Whoa, wait, what? <laughs> it, it was it was sexy and flirtatious without being sexual. It was again humorous without being jokey. It it those scenes always sort of hit right. Maybe a few times they didn't, but almost all the time they, they hit right. And just by doing that one thing in this movie, I, I think, Norman, the same thing happened to me because when we get to that scene at the end, you start playing back all of those money penny scenes in your head and you go, yes, all of that was built upon from this you know, this this background that we now understand about Bond and Money Penny explains everything we know about Bond and Money Penny. They've mm-hmm. been through hell together. She has shot him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, villains couldn't villains couldn't do it. She could have been the one that killed. 007. She could have been the one. Great, um, real bullet. She. <laughs> they they have this seductive scene in Macau, which is so great. But it doesn't quite go there, which is fine. Um, and then she is somebody with knowledge and experience in the field, and she can dress it up and be sexy in that scene in the club. I mean, it, just everything, everything about Money Penny culminated in that moment where you go, ah, hit yourself over the head. 
this is Money Penny. This is why she is who she is, and this is why she and Bond have this relationship. The other filmmakers, the other filmmakers never had to think about that. <laughs> you know, it right, just kind of worked it, anyway. Right. It was, and and especially because we got a new Money Penny um, with the Pierce movies, mm-hmm. uh, and it was just let's just add a Money Penny character in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's yeah. always traditionally a money petty character in the office space where Bond walks by her, has the again the the traditional repartee, and walks into M's office. That's tradition. Yep. But this movie has proven, and all the Craig movies have proven that they are breaking that tradition in order to tell you the reason why. Yeah. Why is the tradition this, there? Yeah. And why does it exist? Was, yeah. yeah. What's one of the greatest reveals? Of why. Yeah. It's really interesting because that scene in Macau, I think, leaves it up to enough of the imagination so you can either believe they did or you can believe they didn't. Mm-hmm. In either way, it works. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've, I've, always, I've always believed that they did uh, just by the way that they're talking in the club uh, and what they're talking about. Um. And what they're referencing, the many hands helping out and yada, yada, yada. Um, So, but what I love is that either way, it still creates the foundation for that relationship. Um, And that by the time she's in the office and he is the agent and she's working for M, that's not something that can happen anymore. But they'll always have this kind of like grounding for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, there it it becomes almost. It's n- the forbidden fruit that they're not going to touch anymore. Um, and in some ways, I think what makes this so special is that she's the one person, and and this is why I like to think of it like this. She's the first person that Bond has been intimate with that hasn't died Mm. and (laughs) won't die. And she becomes that touchstone for him, I think. Um, Because every other person that he's been in an intimate relationship with, even M, has died. And Moneypenny, by choosing to stay in the office, is keeping herself from harm. And there's something about that that I think creates a, a, a sense of security for Bond now that he wouldn't have without that. So, I, again, it's, it's so cool that we can sit and talk about a character like Moneypenny who, for all intents and purposes, was kind of a throwaway flirtation thing in all the other films, and now she has such depth. Um, and, you know... yeah. Don't know if I want to touch whether or not they sent Money Penny to sleep with Bond just to help him with the job, um, because that's also the implied thing in there in Macau um, that she was sent to help him in any way possible. That's kind of weird, um, <laughs> especially coming from M. Uh, but yeah, let's move on to Q. Let's go to safer ground with the boy with spots. Q. Uh, what did you think about uh, the the brand new Q? And you know, obviously played by somebody who is uh, much younger in Ben Wishaw. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so it obviously has a long shelf life as Q at that age. Well, I mean, I, my, my heart will always be, and, and John, you'll probably agree, my heart will always be with Desmond Llewellyn. I mean, yeah. it's, that's, that's kind of like, you know, he's our Alfred, yeah. you know, to James, to, to James Bond's Bruce Wayne or Batman. But that being said, I, I don't want to take away from Ben. He did a fantastic job, and I think it was a very necessary change to tell this story because we are dealing with weaponry that is probably most effective in the hands of brainiacs as opposed to these cold warriors. And that's what he represents. I mean, that, that is exactly the scene of, of the museum. You know, it's like, I can do what I, I can do 10 times the amount of damage you ever can in my pajamas, you know, over <laughs> Earl Grey. But every once in a while, I need this brute blunt instrument because I can't get to that infinitesimal percentage of, of the objective. Aside from that, it makes perfect sense that you would have someone this gifted and this trained and uh, probably somebody that the audience relates to a little bit more because we, A, want to get to a younger audience and B, to get to the younger audience, you have to have somebody that they can, I guess for lack of a better word, objectify or connect with on that level. I mean, a younger Money Penny does that. A younger Q does that because really the old soldier here, the one that's been around for a while is Bond. So I think he did a great job and he didn't play vulnerable or weak. He just played young, but he definitely knew what he was doing. And there wasn't the Q branch yet, you know, where you're walking by the traditional Desmond Llewellyn benches and garages full of all of these exploding bolos and exploding pens and wristwatches that shoot darts. Put and that down. <laughs> That's my lunch. But he did give the traditional lines like, and with all of your field equipment, please return it back in pristine condition 007. You know, I mean, you have to love that. The thing about Q is this. I mean, um, we saw him played by Desmond Llewellyn and, um, then the, there was that really uh, just unfortunate attempt to bring in John Cleese to mm -hmm. uh, to fill that role. Um, yeah. Even in Never Say Never Again, we got the sort of, you know, doddering old man playing Q. Right. And to me, replacing Q with somebody who is much younger was a way to not not do what we've did with bond where we just sort of replace and and kind of tweak and and rebuild the character but what we got to do is justify the relationship between bond and q this time around so bond and q always had that friendly adversarial relationship from the very beginning you know I, Surely you're joking. I never joke about my work 007 and on and on and on and on from that point forward. It was always this playful adversarial thing that they had going on. So now let's justify that relationship, but we're going to justify it by creating a generation gap and we're going to justify it by creating a knowledge gap about what they do. And that's great because we get to say, okay, the, the relationship, the way these guys bump heads will be the same. But now you understand where Bond is coming from, and now you understand where Q is coming from. Now, whether or not you like a young Q or an old Q, whether or not you like 
you know, Ben Wishaw's kind of like hipster nerd style. That's, that's subjective. So what, <laughs> you know, um, you can like that or not like it. But I think what we're keeping is the heart of the, the friendly rivalry that they have and the, the totally different approaches they have. So it's a terrific idea to be able to work that into this movie where we have reinvented so many other elements for James Bond. I mean, they've been reinvented, but you're right. The spirit and the essence still remains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the packaging has been changed. Yeah, exactly. I, I tend to like my cues all powerful, but then he made Bond <laughs> irrelevant completely. So, um. <laughs> well, there's that cue too. That, yeah. that's yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that guy. All, yeah. all of them. I, yeah. I love Ben Wishaw's cue though, in the fact that again, you know, every single character here is kind of growing into their role. And so when they finally introduce this cue, there's still room for him to grow. You know, he makes the mistake mm-hmm. of plugging in the computer in MI6 headquarters, thinking he can defeat whatever it is and it won't cause a problem. And, of course, he ends up shouting expletives as he realizes mm-hmm. how dumb he's been. So it's it's a fantastic thing to see. And it creates a great opportunity to have a good relationship between him and Bond moving forward where they have worked very closely together. Um, And even just the scenes where he's like, put your back into it. You want to come down here and do it? You know, (laughs) trying to get into the door. Very, very classic um, without feeling forced. You know, Mm -hmm. it feels like that hipster kid. Oh, it's not that hard, you know, as Bond's, putting his whole body against the door, trying to break it down in the subway. So, or excuse me, the tube. So <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I think it, it, I can't wait to see what happens. Uh, there's a great commercial right now, and we're recording this for, for Spectre, for prosperity's sake, everybody know that. There's a great commercial right now for the Omega watch. Mm. And Bond <laughs> has the watch and he's looking at it. He's like, what does it do? And Q says, it tells time. <laughs> like, you know, I, right. he's waiting. To, does it have a laser? Does it have a repelling wire? It tells time. That's what it does. So, uh, again, it's 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 a great thing. It's a good relationship between them so far. Mm-hmm. And just another Absolutely. trivia touchstone, and I'm going to flex your guys' brains here a little bit, but the very first time that we see the Q character, and I don't think it was Desmond Llewellyn at the time, but we we see him as a major Boothroyd yeah. who was quartermaster. Right. And the very first thing that Major Boothroyd actually gave Bond in this meeting, if you want to put Q and Bond together, they exchanged his service sidearm for the new nine millimeter Walther PPK PPK. Right. Yes, because he had been using the Beretta. Beretta. Correct. Which and what did you see in the museum? Yeah. In Skyfall. The yeah. very first time he met Q. Q gave him the new Walther PPK. Yep. It's a very subtle detail, but the meeting was the same. And a radio. It's called a radio. So they kind of fit in. from Q branch. They fit in that and then Goldfinger at the same time. So (laughs) again, when you're writing stuff like this, you have to know the history in order to write it respectfully for the fans as we are to appreciate the subtlety of those tones and really just like, yeah, they get it. And that builds a lot of trust. Mm-hmm. 
What did you gentlemen think of Severine being the main Bond woman? And and she really is the only one other than Money Penny. Um, and and Money Penny is uh, she's much different in this film because she's kind of a recurring female character for Bond in the movie. Um, and and they're on the same side the whole time. But Severine is the only other Bond woman that we get. And um, I don't know. I would. I wonder what you had had thought of her. Did she have a memorable enough role for the 50th anniversary Bond well, female? I mean, she's the sacrificial lamb, which is a type of Bond woman that we've seen before for sure. Um, so I, I hate that. Well, no, let me take that back. I, I don't hate that that's what she became. I sort of knew that that's what she would become. Um, all of that was played dramatically. It was played very well. They were able to dramatically justify why she does what she does for Bond. So I thought that played out very well. And her background was interesting. You know, Bond sort of confronting but also comforting her in a way about like look i know where you're coming from i can help take care of this even though the mission is really about him it's not about her um it was a good character it was more of clearly a a dramatic payoff for silva and bond unfortunately the one thing that i really appreciated about her scene with bond and macau when they first met was it was a really good reintroduction to how good of a character reader that Bond is with people, mm-hmm. i.e. Casino Royale. Because it was a very similar scene to when he and Vesper sat in the train together while he was studying her, looking over the details, saw the, when it comes to Severine, like saw the tattoo, saw the fear in her eyes, and completely just... 100% broke her down in that one meeting like a poker player does. That's That was that bond. And I think that her character serviced the story well from the standpoint of setting up how impressive Silva was as a character or who we were going to meet. The foreshadowing of of what she was describing, like, do you, know, do you understand fear? Not like this. I think that the actress that played Severine did a really good job at at emoting that at just there was this just terror this this terror this terrifying force behind her eyes that she couldn't quite reveal but for someone as beautiful as she as she is there was that hardness to her because of the lifestyle that she was forced to lead because of this per, this particular villain and i think that she did really well with it and by the time the reveal happened I think that that was about as far as her character could go. Uh, unfortunately, and I don't know who actually died the more expensive death. Was it um, was it the you know in in golden uh, in Goldfinger? Was it um, <laughs> covered in gold paint? I mean, I'm not right. sure how much that was in street value, or was it the amount of McKellen fifty <laughs> that was spilled in Skyfall. So. That's a good question. Would, a, yeah, you know, yeah so. that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I, I'm with you guys, though. I, I think she plays the role perfectly. Um, the fear, like you said, Norm, the, the realization that 
she will probably die anyway, no, no matter whether Bond comes along or not. So this is her only option, you know, to actually escape the clutches of Silva. Um, I think all of that is played so well, and so I really like her as a Bond woman and a Bond character who is able to hold her own with him, you know. Um, and when she says, you don't know fear like this, you know, it, geez, it, Silva is one of the creepiest, scariest Bond villains that we've ever seen. And obviously has no remorse about anything that he's doing whatsoever. And it has nothing to do with world domination. And it has nothing to do with trying to make the world a better place in space. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Uh, you know, an organization like Spectre or Quantum or any of that. I mean, this guy is just bent on revenge. Uh, so, you know, this is, is one scary bad person and the way that she is able to play that before you ever meet him builds him up in a mm -hmm. and i think the perfect way yeah um and it's because of her performance you know the uh, the the way that she plays how scared she is when she's talking to bond having trouble even getting out of the words I think is is uh, really well done there in Macau. So I like her a lot, and it is sad that, um, you know, unlike Camille in Quantum, she does not get to live. But then, of course, she also made, you know, the mistake of sleeping with Bond. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the kiss of death, kind of like a horror movie. Um, lastly, real quick, I don't know if we have a ton to say about it, but I love that Albert Finney's playing Kincaid and um, brings up the most interesting question because he names M. Yeah. He calls her Emma. Is that really her name or is that just him being cute with the, when Bond says this is M and he just calls her Emma? No, I think it was, I, I think he was being cute, but even, even more to it than that, I think Albert Finney was great in the role, but and, and John, you may have heard this, yeah. and I know I've talked to you about this before, Matthew. Skyfall originally in one of the treatments or one of the ideas was supposed to have been a safe house for retired double O agents. That was that was that's out there. That's in the interwebs. You people can Google it. <laughs> but I also understand at the time that there was an approach at least, or at least an invitation for Sean Connery to play this role as one of those retired double O agents. That's the, I read that it's again, it's on the interwebs somewhere. So, and I can see that as being the case, but I like the character of Kincaid because it is part of Bond's history that we haven't seen. If it was Sean Connery, that would have been the biggest fan wank moment of ever. Here, here and it very well could have derailed the story at that point because it's J he, it's James Bond. I mean, and let's go to an even deeper leap here. The reason why they went back to Skyfall is to return Daniel Craig's James Bond to the origin of his roots. Sean Connery played the first James Bond. Sean Connery is Scottish, i.e. Sean Connery's roots being Scotland. 
i.e. Bond's roots being Scotland. So, i.e. so much McAllen in the film. That's right. <laughs> so much McAllen in the film. There, it, I, I understand why they did it, and I think it's a great role. I don't want to belabor the point too much. I thought Albert Finley did a great job. I think he and Dame Judi Dench were a lot of fun to watch acting together. Uh, there are a couple of, you know, respectfully saying there are a couple of just old war horses in the motion picture industry, and it was nice to have their little bit of time together. And I think that there is a certain kind of sadness that that Kincaid had for just what happened to James overall. You know, the plight of his, the demise of his parents, the plight of James going off as an orphan into the boarding schools and eventually getting absorbed into the system. Uh, and we know from what Vesper said that MI6 likes to uh, recruit from orphanages because they have no detached these children have no attachments left in their lives so that they become detached in real life and remember that goes all in the play i mean think about that goes all the way back to what they said in casino royale they are paying so much off at the end of this movie yeah i mean i i don't really have anything to add to that except that i i totally agree that had that been connery i would have been right back to where i was with um die another day you know stopping the movie to introduce a guest star <laughs> and, and that would have taken me out of it um i kincaid's a great character and i liked that there there was a consistent um timeline with what was going on to say okay well bond has been dead <laughs> for however many months so by the time we get there the house has been sold the gun collection was bought by uh, what a collector in iowa or something like that so all these idaho little, uh, oh idaho right yeah so yeah. all these threads get sort of tied back together and and we see what is the end of this old life that bond had you know personified by him and and made physical by the house um great scene great moments glad we introduced the character so glad that it was not sean connery because that would have also played into this fan theory of james bond being a code name not a person and and i don't mm -hmm. want to go that route <laughs> but that also that's a little bit of the fear that we have with william shatner appearing in any future star trek yeah absolutely absolutely i mean yeah I know that they wrote it smartly with Leonard Nimoy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I know people have their opinions about that, but Leonard Nimoy is Leonard Nimoy and Spock is Spock, but Shatner is Kirk and Kirk is at the pinnacle of the most recognized characters probably in Star Trek. Yeah. There, I mean, I think I would have bought Timothy Dalton. I think I would have bought even, um, well, I mean, is George Lazenby still around? Yeah, yeah, sure is. I would have bought that. Just because he was only in one film, but you can't put Connery in a role like that and not have the everything just kind of you hear that record scratching moment that mm -hmm. and then just the whole crowd just take a collective pause and it's like, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yep. Well, once again in the movie, we have an enemy that was once on the inside, and it is something that we have seen before in Bond films, and so I wanted to talk about the villain and and kind of the end of the movie because this is for some people where people kind of knock it saying oh it's just home alone james bond and things like that so yeah what did you end up thinking about silva as a, a bond villain and he's very familiar in the sense that we saw this kind of thing in goldeneye 
and the way that they wrap up the the film at the house i mean does it just feel like home alone for you or is it is it feel more um does it resonate more well let's face it bond villains can only do so much they can only try to take over the world so many times they can only try to create a master race so many times <laughs> But who's going to take over the world when I die? I know it feels like that. It feels like you're leaving the world. Hear his, wor- hear his words. Who's going to take over the world when I die? Um, oh, sorry. No, that was totally appropriate. Sorry. It's totally appropriate. Um, so I, I don't mind if it feels like revisiting a, a plot point to have somebody from the inside who is doing something. Why not? I mean, an organization that big that that is that spread out, you're going to have a few bad apples. I'm okay with that. But let's face it, Silva stands out in a way that Alec Trevelyan never did. You know, Um, the, the characterization is incredible. The horror of his face when he takes out the, uh, the, the, the implant is Super creepy and dramatic. It's wonderful. The bizarre sexuality of the character is just a terrific layer upon the many layers that this guy is. I think everything plays just right. And I know that there are plot holes. I know that there are gaps in the story. Yeah, I'm fine with that because... He sells what he's doing. He's really wonderful at it. And you believe the emotion of what he's doing. So for all of those reasons, I was totally behind him. I just, yeah, this was a great character. And it was a great idea to play it the way they did. And again, if you're going to reinvent and reboot, not just a character, but a whole idea then again, you've got to blow up what you had before. You've got to take out the MI6 that we had and give a reason for turning it into something else. And the best way to do that is from this internal threat. If it was just another external threat, oh, there's another guy trying to take over the world. Oh, he blew up MI6. Well, okay, we still have to go over here to beat the bad guy. In this case, we have to root him out from the inside. You know, there's that old saying that your hero is only as good as his villain. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, I think in this case that Javier, Javier Bardem, first of all, had brought such an incredible performance to a James Bond villain in, in Silva. He, I mean, yes, that that one scene where he described what happened to him when he got caught and he survived his cyanide capsule and the effect that that all just built the psychosis of of why he was doing what he was doing if Javier Bardem was about ego that's very much where James Bond is his antithesis and James Bond is about instinct and that's where the battle is between these two agents and how M pushed those agents in one way or the other I think that the whole point of Silva's character was to show Bond that if you always just believed in what she said, you are going down just this one track and you have no individuality. And the reason why he's blaming the system is because he didn't protect himself by using his own instincts, by trusting what he he knows of himself. And I think that's where James Bond had the upper hand. He's like, you know what? 
I trust M up to a point. And I think that's where M really knows that when she said, I knew that you could take care of yourself when you figured out that you were you. Mm-hmm. I don't think that she would say that about Silva. Silva was a loyal and serviceable agent who she sent out, always completed the mission, but cut him loose when he failed. He failed because I don't think he followed his instincts. He followed her direction. Bond succeeds because he follows her direction and he trusts his instincts. And that's where Silva kind of allows Bond to see that and say like, yep, I think I'm going the right path here because if I didn't, I would be him. And you're right, John. That's where the Trevelyan 007 relationship didn't really quite work out. But that was an agent bent on global domination. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, Trevelyan is angry and he's bent on global domination. In that scene when Silva takes out his implant and he describes biting the cyanide capsule, he puts it back in, they leave the room, and he laughs. So the moment was real. It was also an act. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's so twisted. It's so completely twisted. And that's what makes him, you know, a great bad guy on the level of the Joker, as opposed to just another Bond villain. Yeah, another Batman reference, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and what I love about this too is that uh, I just I have to mention a couple of things before we get into that. One, Bond breaks into M's house again, even though he's told not to. Uh, two, that's John Barry's old house, the composer. Uh, that's that's M's house that they pull up to uh, in the film. So I thought that was really cool. That's a quick aside. Just had to get those uh, fun Very things nice. in. But um, what I love about what this villain does is he brings the threat home. This is the first time, and correct me if I'm wrong, John or Norm, that Britain is at the the center, that the, the British Isles are at the center of the finale of a film mm. where they are intimately threatened. You know, we've had a, uh, a bombing in London. We've had the uh, shoot-up of the, the, the parliamentary process that's happening with the committee there. Um, many people have died in, in that. And, and then, of course, we go all the way to Scotland then as well. This is this is quintessentially a British film, a, a, a British Isle film for a franchise that is built on a British agent but hasn't spent very little time in Britain. And yet this the, the end of this film is is so entrenched in the history and the lore of MI6 and where Silva has come from and what happened to him and he's bringing the fight to us, you know, the, the audience who hold MI6 and, you know, Britain and, and the British Isles is the United Kingdom is kind of being untouchable because they don't get touched in the Bond films. But now the fight is here on our doorstep. And that that's pretty relevant as well, um, just when we think about the world and what's happened in in obviously in England with the terror attacks that have happened there as well as the United States. So both of us are very familiar with having things come home. So I liked that about him as a villain. And I think what makes him so memorable is just the fact that he's so dang creepy. Um, 
Everything about him is an act. It, you know, uh, John, you were talking about the way that he he uses sexuality completely as a weapon. Mm -hmm. And that's so scary, you know, because there's no truth to it. It's just another way to unnerve somebody or get what you want. Um, And I, I really... I think he's one of the standout. If you were to rank Bond villains, I think he's probably somewhere, you know, top 10, top 15 at least when it comes to actual villains. And obviously his plan isn't world domination. It's really just revenge Mm -hmm. on MI6 and M. And that's scary enough, you know, because they're usually out there protecting us from whatever's happening instead of being the ones that are under attack themselves so i really appreciate that and i think oh gosh you know i love goldeneye because i love personally that that bond you know has a connection with the villain that they created and what's interesting is that this bond or at least the timeline for what's happening silva is caught as tomorrow never dies is happening when the handover is taking place mm, and right with yeah. so it's interesting to think that as Pierce is doing that, Silva is doing whatever he's doing. That's the timeline. That's when that's happening. So that's a that's another interesting little tidbit because they actually throw that in there. Right. Um and if you're a Bond fan, you kind of are like, oh wait there was another thing happening for our favorite secret agent in that area of the uh, world uh, while that was happening. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) John, John, I think your, your analysis of Silva being the Joker, I think is just absolutely dead on because all Silva really wants is anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he isn't about riches. He isn't about, wealth or power or influence he is about creating total anarchy in a system that failed him yeah. and the woman that put him in that position right and that's it he said it's just and he's doing it not with gasoline and not with fire and not with bullets he's doing it with information mm-hmm. or with misinformation mm-hmm. or or using the weapon that they can't control so i i now i have i have like heath ledger doing silva's part in that tube, which I think would have been brilliant also. So. <laughs> right. Why didn't yeah. make me see this radio disappear? <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have to obviously talk about the music and the theme before we wrap up here. Ugh. So just want to let you guys go uh, because I, I think that uh, the soundtrack we get here by Thomas Newman is brilliant. Uh, it's it's a I love listening to this. I listen to the soundtrack all the time. So I want you guys to touch on that. And then I think the other main question that gets asked with this film and and obviously when we talk about bond songs, is this the best bond song ever? I don't know how much more I can say about the the soundtrack and the theme song um without it just being very obvious and very gushing. Um, I think it's one of the best soundtracks and certainly one of the best title tracks that they have ever had. 
and that title track is even helped more because the uh, the opening opticals, the opening titles of that movie are so strong. They basically tell you the story in a way that you don't get when you see it for the first time. But you go back and rewatch it and you go, aha, there's every little thing, every little detail of this movie in that opening animation. Um, so it, it it's just a, a fantastic merging of the, the right performer, the right song, and then the right graphics to go along with it. Um, really one of the best moments of, of any Bond title track ever. Um, the soundtrack, like I mentioned before, I think it does a terrific job of using the old James Bond theme, using the Skyfall theme, but also just giving you these little audible hints where, I mean, I sat there in the theater the first time I heard it and go, oh, that's that's like that piece out of Goldfinger. That's like that piece out of Goldeneye. That's like that piece out of this other thing. And it's subtle. It doesn't, it, it's not like Bond sitting at his desk in OHMSS and you hear a piece of each soundtrack from every mission before. It's not that at all. Um, but it's enough of a throwback for you to say, yeah, th this is all something that occupies this world. You know, th these are all the threads that tie together to make James Bond. Um, so w without any more gushing, I'll, I'll just say, yeah, I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> I think that a Bond song and a Bond opening are probably just as important as an element of the film as the characters and the story itself. Because when you sit down in the theater and the lights go down and you have that opening interlude and then it goes into the song and it goes into the title credits. If those do their job right, you really don't know where you are for the next two hours until the end credits because it has immersed you so deeply and so intimately that the entire illusion is solid. And this is one of those moments where both the title credits and the animations and the song are in such perfect unison that it ends up becoming just this great warmth that rounds out the entire movie. And you're right, John, the, the touchstones in all the different ways that Thomas Newman understands all the scores that came before him are in the same way in the same vein that those nostalgic moments are weaved throughout the movie. That's what I'm going to go off track, not so much for the song, but just for the movie itself. You're going to go off track. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the whole movie itself, it really is both a great way to tell a new story and, and to finish this trilogy in a way, but also to pay respect to all the fans that have brought the, franchise this far and the balance that it's that's achieved can only really be summed up in how well balanced a McAllen 18 is <laughs> it's the tones are there the the independence is there the strength is there all of these are harmoniously balanced into this one perfect offering and I think that that's what this Skyfall, the song from Adele, who's gorgeous, uh, and the opening credits. But for me, it hasn't quite reached 
what I think the pinnacle is of James Bond opening credits and and song uh, is. So and and wait, what and what is, is the pinnacle? That would be Shirley Bassey and Goldfinger. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Goldfinger always will. I mean, it, it, we all have ours, you know. But for me, it's just the the bombastic brass just her canon vocals and everything starts off that way and you see just that really nice shot of the hand with Gert Frobe's face in it and where it, the whole title just all sinks at once it just says Goldfinger to me and it was probably one of my most formative moments with Bond that is really that is the highest achievement you know in Bond for me you know I think that this is probably my favorite Bond theme, that doesn't mean it's the best. But for me, it's my favorite because it's the one I can listen to the most. I think probably next to Live and Let Die. Hmm. Uh, and um, nobody does it better. Um, the Let listenability factor, I think, <laughs> is is huge. You know, because if you're... I'm talking about, you know, it's playing on my iPhone, which might come up, and I don't want to skip it, you know, to the next song. Right. Skyfall comes on, and I want to listen to Skyfall. And what I thought made that song so spectacular as a Bond theme is that even before the film came out, it blew up. It was huge. It was universally accepted as a great song. And then they put it with that Bond film and the visuals and everything as you guys are talking about and it just worked and then the score was fantastic and everything about it was brilliant and so i look at this and i think what i think what makes it so special is that skyfall was just so good and and that's really the thing that you know that's a, what makes a great bond movie is every single thing works together the song, the score, the actors, the storyline, and it all just congeals into this beautiful thing that we call a good Bond film. So I, I think that that, yeah, I think that's probably a good place to just ask you guys, if you're going to rate Skyfall, what do you rate it? What do you think, John? So before I give you my... Uh my ranking here, my, my score, I, I want to mention something that, um, so when I saw this movie, I was blown away and, and I just, I immediately wanted to see it again. And I was trying to think through everything that I had seen and, and why I thought it was so good. And the, the theme that I've hit upon so much tonight is, is what I came away from that movie with, which is that this movie reinvents Bond, but more importantly, it justifies Bond and all the trappings, all the gimmicks, all the all the settings, all the quirks, all the things that we have come to accept, but maybe thought were a little hokey or weird or outdated or laughable. All of that came together and it became real and it became serious. And one of my favorite essays written about this movie um, that really crystallized everything that I thought about it. It was by a friend of mine, Eli Cross. He has a blog called Entropy Tango, and he uh, he wrote this piece about Skyfall in November 2012. 
And the thing that he, he he talks about a lot of the stuff that that I had thought about this movie as well. But one of the things that he says that I thought was so prescient, and when I read it, I was like, of course, that's why this is so brilliant. He says, this is a classic Bond movie told in reverse. And then he goes through every scene and every instance of why this is a movie told in reverse. It starts big. And then it strips away every single thing that is Bond until you get to the end. And the final action scene is a couple of people in a room with a knife. And that's not how Bond movies end. <laughs> so, but it's not just that. I mean, he, he talks about how everything, everything is just pulled away and pulled out from this Bond in order to strip him down to the bone before you end up with the character who can become Bond. So I, I love the way that he describes that. Check out his blog. Entropy Tango is the, the name of the blog. And just search for Skyfall there. Um, I, uh, I, I think this is a great trilogy, and I can't wait to see what comes with the next Bond film. Um, but I think out of this trilogy, probably Skyfall is my favorite uh, between Casino Royale, Quantum, and uh, and this one, so I have to give it um, I have to give it uh, five radio locators out of five. Latest thing from Hugh Grant. It is the latest, <laughs> the very latest. After rewatching Skyfall, I, I I really remembered and I and I came into a better understanding of. When I first saw it and and this last revisiting of it. When I first saw it, I wasn't sure how I felt about it because you're right, John, it was a a James Bond story told in reverse. I wanted I wasn't sure what I I wanted out of it after Quantum. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to to draw from it as I was watching the movie because as the story was unfolding, there were so many great touchstones to the original Bond series. I'm not sure, like, where do they want to go with this? When they finally got to the DB5, I'm like, are they fan servicing us or is this going to fit in? <laughs> and I have to be honest, the very first time I saw this movie, I wasn't really sure how I felt. In revisiting this film in the last year, and especially in the, yesterday when I rewatched it for the show tonight... I think I finally really, truly appreciated the movie for what it stands for. And it stands for everything that you just said. It stands for how to make Bond, number one, relevant. Number two, just relatable. You can't relate to a character that has the opportunity of doing exactly what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to do it, and whenever he wants to do it. That's That was the difficulty with trying to relate and trying to create Superman for a new audience. You can't you can't relate to somebody who can do whatever he wishes to do at a moment's notice. That's not mm -hmm. believable. It doesn't lend for good storytelling, characterization, or drama. What they did here was the one thing that James Bond fans did not expect. They gave him vulnerability. They gave him the ability to internalize and try and process these feelings or lack thereof or pain or suffering. This is not what James Bond is about. James Bond is about winning and getting the ladies and drinking great 
alcohol and driving great cars and winning at the end with with grandeur and pomp and circumstance, not winning in the end with throwing a Bowie knife in the back of a villain and losing the one character that actually meant something to him. That's not James Bond. But that's what was necessary for James Bond to move forward. And I think that's the one thing that people really have to understand about this film is that you have created now a story, an actual story about James Bond himself, not about the mission and not about a succession plan. You're actually creating a story about the person. We've never had that before. So in all of that, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and on, but for all of that, and for what it actually means to me now and from what I've learned, I am going to rate this five out of five shots of McKellen 50. That, that is an expensive rating, my friend. That is an exceptional rating, <laughs> my friend. Ah, goodness. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to add to what you both have said. You have stolen all of the words. Uh, and created so much win with this review that I don't know where I should go. But I will say this, and I think you started in a good place, Norm. It, you know, when I first saw this movie, what did I think? And for me, what I thought, what my immediate thought was, is this my favorite Bond movie? That That's where I was. And... It's not my favorite Bond movie, but it is number two, and that's pretty impressive uh, for a 50-year-old series with uh, 20, what is it, four films now that's, Mm -hmm. you know, the 24th about to come out. So I I think that that is a great record to say um, and to have that happen. And and, uh, I think everybody knows who, if you've listened to the 602 Club, you know my favorite Bond movie is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, and we'll talk about that film one day and um, you'll you'll understand my, my, my further thoughts on that. But what made this for me so special was the, the fact that, as we have said over and over and over again, this is a personal story and this is probably next to, I think, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the most personal story that Bond has had. And for me, that's my thing. That's my jam. I love character moments. Uh, I love stories about characters. And the fact that what we were talking about here with Bond is, is always about the character of Bond and what he's going through, his emotional journey, the fact that he has an emotional journey in the first place is pretty incredible. And so if I did have to rate this, I'd say that this is five out of five perfect DB5s because as we mentioned, uh, the moment when this uh, DB5 is destroyed is is almost too much for me to handle. Uh, So... Uh, but, uh, yeah, this movie is phenomenal and I, I can't, it'll be very interesting because it's very hard to go from a movie like this that's so universally loved by so many people, fans and, and the rest, and then go into the next film. So 
I can't wait to see what they have next for us in Spectre, but you will have to wait next time when James Bond returns in Spectre. Uh, but uh, it's been great talking to you guys about this. I, I love the fact that we got a chance to do that. Feel free, guys, to check out all of the shows that we have for you on Trek FM at trek.fm. You can also find us on iTunes at itunes.com slash trek.fm. While you're there in your iTunes, hit that subscribe button to help us out. Um, those subscriptions really help us rise in the iTunes rankings, and, and that's really helpful for us. Don't worry if you don't use Apple. We've got you covered. You can find us on Stitcher and TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 files from the website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link as well. We would love to have you talk about anything and everything that we talk about here on Trek FM in the Babel Conference. So join us there. That's our listeners-only discussion group. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook, or if you go to trek.fm, hit discussion on the menu bar, and it'll take you there. We'll let you in, and you can join in with the rest of the fans of Trek FM talking about all the things we're talking about. And of course, we have some big news talking about a, a brand new a Star Trek series just announced. So join in the fun. Have to say a special thanks to Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, associate producers here on Trek FM for the 602 Club through Patreon. It's because of these guys that the show comes to you each week. What they understood is that Trek FM is a listener-supported network. If as you listen through the shows, you're not going to hear ads. You're not going to hear things breaking up the conversations. You're going to hear great content, great sound quality, and all of that comes to you through the people who support us on Patreon. If you want to keep that content coming to you, you can help us out. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm. We have some amazing perks for you these days. Our uh, illustrious leader, Christopher Jones, set up the Patreon Zone. It's patreon.zone for anyone who supports us $5 or more. We've got early access to shows. Every week you've got early access to shows before anybody else can listen to them. Uh, we've got some fun ringtones that Chris has created, wallpapers, and so many other things coming down the pipeline for you guys. It's amazing. And, of course, we also have the Patreon's Roundtable uh, for anyone who's $25 or more. Will Wynn does that every month, and listeners get to have their own podcast with the hosts from around the network just joining in and having great conversation. So you can join the team, and I hope you'll do that. Check us out at patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, guys, I, you know, when we first started on this journey, the journey to Spectre, um, I had no idea how much fun it was going to be, but getting together in the 602 Club with you, enjoying some scotches or a Vesper or tea or whatever, Earl Grey, it's been fantastic. So before Ruby kicks us out of here, uh, and we all, you know, spend the rest of the week trying to get to Spectre. Uh, <laughs> tell everybody where they can find you and about the different podcasts that you do. John, uh, let everybody know uh, where you are online and uh, and if they don't know about Mission Log. Sure. The best place to find me is missionlogpodcast.com. So uh, Mission Log is a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and we're very proudly carried on Trek FM. Um, through our website, you can find our episodes, you can find discovered documents, which is a lot of fun because I get to 
dig through the uh, Roddenberry archives and pull out interesting memos and notes and letters and share them with the world. Um, through our website, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, so please do join us there. And Norm, let everybody where they can find you on the network. Uh, you do have a couple of changes coming up for people, and just in case they haven't heard, and uh, where they can find you on the interwebs. Sure. Well, you can always find me on the Babel Conference. That's the Trek FM dedicated listeners page on Facebook. So I post there daily. You can also hear me on Warp 5 as one of the co-hosts for the show. That is the Trek FM dedicated Enterprise podcast, and I host that along with Will Wynn who is our content manager as well. And what Matthew was talking about, uh, shortly uh, towards the beginning of the new year, it's 2016, I will be taking over for Mike and Drew as one of the hosts for Standard Orbit. And I'm very excited about that because I'm a huge fan of the original series. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. You can also find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook because I'm a huge supporter of that independent film project. And I just have to say, I have absolutely loved this journey with the both of you because it is rare to find Bond fans with such great enthusiasm and attention to detail also because that's what we do as Bond fans. We love our detail. So thanks for, you, you know, for all of your time with, with investing in these shows because I'll tell you what, I am so excited to see Spectre. I am so, so excited to see Spectre. I'm not going to lie. It makes it easy as the host because I just wind you guys up and let you go uh, and then try and keep up with something clever every once in a while. So it's it's pretty awesome. Uh, <laughs> if you do want to find me online, you can find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. Uh, I'm on... Eh, Instagram at mrushing. You can also find me doing the orb with Christopher Jones. We talk about Deep Space Nine. And I want you to point you there because recently we've had a couple of great interviews. Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog, as well as Michael Dorn, who played Worf. Uh, so excited to be able to talk to some people behind the scenes on the Deep Space Nine show. So check those out. Uh, do literary checks with Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and get a chance to interview the authors, which is a lot of fun. And then, of course, you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs>